1: Good evening. Um, Thank you first to the LRB for inviting me here tonight. It is an incredibly intimidating honor. (laughs) Um, And thank you to the British Museum for hosting and for all of you for coming on Valentine's Day. (laughs) Happy (laughs) Valentine's Day. Um, I timed this out. It's a little bit over an hour, so I hope you'll bear with me. Um, Okay. People who give birth are often gobsmacked after the fact that this is how everybody got here. As an abstraction, the idea of growing a human inside your body and giving birth to it is wild to the point of being unimaginable. As a lived experience that can range from sublime to deadly, it can inspire a sense of passing, as one friend awaiting the onset of labor recently put it to me, beyond the veil. Writing about the poetry of the First World War, writer and critic James Campbell coined the term combat Gnosticism to describe the belief that, quote, Combat represents a qualitatively separate order of existence that is difficult, if not impossible, to communicate to anyone who has not undergone an identical experience. As far as I'm aware, we have no concept of birth Gnosticism. What we do have is a rich anecdotal literature created by people who have brought humans into the world in all the myriad ways it is possible to do so. The range of experiences is staggering but one thread that often reappears is the sense that one has had a profound and life-altering brush with death. Quote, I knew only that I had to survive, writes Jane Lazar. Quote, I pushed hard to get the bastard out, and because pushing is not an urge, it is a demand backed up by all the violence of your body, turned suddenly into an enemy, has at his command. Pushing with all my might, I experienced for a moment what I would feel for hours with my next child, the certainty that I was dying. Quote, To let the baby out, writes Maggie Nelson, you have to be willing to go to pieces, end quote. Quote, If I accomplish nothing else in my life, writes Carol Meso, just this is miraculous, that I plowed without illusion towards death, even as I gave life. Not everyone describes birth this way. There are ecstatic births, orgasmic births, traumatic births, and what would be traumatic for one may not be so for another. How we make sense of such experiences has always depended on the contingencies of biology as well as those of time and place, gender, class, and race. This keeps changing what it means to bring a child into the world. For those of us living in industrialized nations where reproductive care is now more readily, if by no means universally, available, having biological children has come to be seen as a matter of choice. While women have been practicing methods of contraception since long before the pill, thinking of having a child as a choice is relatively new. At the same time, advances in assisted reproduction technologies have made the possibility of becoming a parent more widely available, at least to those with the resources to take advantage of such technologies. The mechanics of gestation and birth have been transformed by in vitro fertilization and egg freezing techniques. Today, a pregnant person may be hetero or queer, without a partner or with many partners. They may be a surrogate gestating a fetus for friends or for paying customers. They may be a trans man or identify as non-binary. Recently in Sweden, the first baby was born to a woman whose pregnancy was made possible by transplanting her mother's uterus into her body. The baby gestated in the same womb that had gestated the baby's mother. In 2018, in Brazil, the first baby was born to a woman who had received a uterus from a deceased donor, a medical feat repeated for the first time in North America just last July, opening the door to reproductive hope for trans women who want to carry children of their own. So far, at least, a womb still seems necessary to bring a baby into being, though a team of researchers at Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania has successfully brought premature baby goats to term in a new artificial womb. The apparatus is basically a plastic bag with one tube carrying amniotic fluid in and another carrying it out, and has somewhat unfortunately been dubbed a bio-bag. Human testing is, at best, still a few years away, but this technology is only going to get better, and in the future, some version is likely to be used with late-term human fetuses. This could be a very early step towards a more complex artificial womb that could handle human fetuses at an even earlier stage. News which might have been welcomed by radical feminist Shulamith Firestone, who famously called for, quote, the freeing of women from the tyranny of their biology by any means available, end quote. Firestone did not imagine that an artificial womb would dismantle, quote, a discriminatory sex class system. She yearned for the revolution that would have to come first. If we live long enough, we do not die without at least considering what it means to bring life into being. Whether you have children or not, whether you someday want to have a child or dread it or both, whether you feel confident in your desire never to procreate or find you are not able to procreate regardless of desire, at some point before you shuffle off this mortal coil, you will have navigated the question of whether to be or not to be a biological parent. If you are sitting in this room, it is almost certain that at some point, perhaps as you are making toast in your bathrobe, or riding a city bus to work while looking out at the gray right angles of a city block, or dancing with a barefoot, or lying awake at night with the pillow too hot against your cheek, the modern fantasy of choice and control will whisper to the age-old fantasy of self knocking about your brain that having or not having a child is, in fact, a decision. And you will make it, or you won't, or you may feel with rage or sorrow or relief that it has been made for you. But the the fantasy quickly begins to dissipate when we acknowledge that the conditions for human flourishing are unevenly and brutally distributed, and realize that in an age of ecological catastrophe, we face a range of possible futures in which such conditions no longer reliably exist. One evening last year, Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was chopping vegetables in her kitchen while speaking to her 2.5 million Instagram followers via live stream. Quote, Our planet is going to hit disaster if we don't turn this ship around, she said, pausing to look up from a cutting board littered with squash peels. Quote, There's a scientific consensus that the lives of children are going to be very difficult. Her hands fluttered to the hem of her sweater, then to the waistband of her pants, which she absentmindedly adjusted as she continued... Quote, and it does lead, I think, young people to have a legitimate question. Should... She took a moment to get the wording right. Is it still okay to have children? End quote. Her comments spawned a flurry of agonized and sometimes agonizing pieces from left, right, and center on why you should or should not procreate. But the thorny question of whether it is okay to have children... A question about our deepest hopes and fears, about what we owe to each other and to the unborn, a question that more and more people are asking remains. As Ocasio-Cortez put it, there's, quote, just this basic moral question, like, what do we do, end quote. It seems increasingly clear to me that we are living in a time of radical destabilization of life on earth, which complicates the act of bearing children in ways society has yet to grapple with. We lack the language to talk to each other about how a child born today will live on a planet hotter than it has been since modern human civilization developed. The mind balks. Language fails. How do we talk about having kids when we keep hearing that even if global emissions miraculously drop to zero tomorrow, given the amount of carbon we have already released into the atmosphere, some amount of global heating is, quote, locked in for at least a decade. Or that it's possible we have already passed climate tipping points whose, whose effects researchers still don't fully understand. We know enough to know that people are living with the effects of global heating right now. We know that climate risk and the worst effects of ecological disaster are unevenly distributed across race, class, and gender among industrialized and developing nations. For many people, conditions tantamount to the end of the world have already arrived. We know that to avoid the near-term devastation of vulnerable communities and to avert the risks of mass starvation, civilizational collapse, and species extinction, we need to decarbonize the global economy. The faster this happens, the better. And it's not just carbon. Human activity is causing catastrophic soil degradation, chemical pollution, and ecological collapse. We are witness to a staggering loss of biological diversity. Extinctions, microplastics, bee colonies, dead zones. The future is now. Every biological mother on the planet has DDT in her breast milk. The polar ice caps are melting. Is it still okay to have a child? Australia is on fire. Is it still okay to have a child? My house is flooded. My crops have failed. My community is fleeing. Is it still okay to have a child? It is, in a sense, an impossible question. With her careful rhetorical shift from the intimate, should I have a child, to the more theoretical formation, is it okay to still have a child? Ocasio-Cortez conjured the paradox of scale that haunts any consideration of the ethics of childbearing in a time of planet-wide catastrophe. Having a child is at once the most intimate, irrational thing a person can do, prompted by desires so deep we hardly know where to look for their wellsprings and also an unavoidably political act that increasingly requires one to confront not only the complex biopolitics of pregnancy and birth, but also the intersecting legacies of colonialism, racism, and patriarchy, all while trying to wrap one's head around the relationship between the impossible extremes of the personal and the global. This ricochet between extremes has come to frame the emerging popular discourse around the climate crisis and children. In a recent article in Outside magazine titled, I Got a Vasectomy Because of Climate Change, the writer begins, quote, I've always struggled to combine the idea of personal responsibility with the overwhelming need for human society to address the threat posed by climate change. End quote. Want to fight climate change? Reads Guardian, a Guardian headline from 2017 Have Fewer Children. This piece reports on what has become a widely cited paper by Seth Wines and Kimberly Nicholas, published in Environmental Research Letters, in which the researchers considered, quote, a broad range of individual lifestyle choices, end quote, and came up with recommendation for four, quote, high-impact actions with, quote, the potential to contribute to systemic change and substantially reduce annual personal emissions, end quote. These are, in ascending order of impact, eating a plant-based diet, Avoiding airplane travel, living car free, and having one fewer child. According to their calculations, having one fewer child would lead to an emissions savings over twenty four times greater than the next option, living without a car. Quote, a US family who chooses to have one fewer child, they write, would provide the same level of emissions reductions as six hundred and eighty four teenagers who chose to adopt comprehensive recycling for the rest of their lives, end quote. Cute candy colored graphs proliferating in mainstream media with icons for a cow, a plane, a car, and a baby, their emissions impact bars rising like tiny condo towers, illustrating what you can do to help solve climate change. I find this framing troubling. <laughs> Most obviously, it shifts responsibility for global emissions from systemic actors like fossil fuel companies and governments onto individuals. By doing so, it gives corporations a pass while placing moral responsibility onto subjects who live within systems where they are not free to make carbon-neutral choices. It accepts as inevitable a neoliberal order that has driven the climate crisis, insisting that our responses to that crisis take place within that same system. You can whittle down your carbon footprint by eating less meat, but you can't buy carbon-neutral food. If you live in a city with limited public transportation, you may have to use a car to get to work, I am reminded of the journalist who tried to live without contributing to the destruction of the rainforests, who tried to avoid products like paper towels or certain plastics linked to deforestation. But despite all of her scrupulous and sometimes absurdly Herculean efforts, she was simply not able to do so. What's more, this framing ignores the fact that people living in different parts of the world have very different per capita emissions and overconsumption in the global north means that children born in the global south will feel the effects of the climate crisis with far greater force. Just by assuming that getting pregnant is a choice, this whole conversation has a decidedly western flavor and ignores the realities of baby-making in much of the world today. As other researchers have somewhat wryly pointed out, the math doesn't even work. According to these calculations, the total share of moral responsibility is overdetermined because for any generation, quote, every preceding generation is 100% responsible for that generation's emissions, end quote. This means that your grandchildren are 100% responsible for your great-grandchildren's emissions, but your children are 100% responsible for your grandchildren's, but you are 100% responsible for your children's. Thus, you are basically at fault for every subsequent generation's emissions, but that's okay because so is every other subsequent generation, and if you think about it, why shouldn't you blame your own parents for choosing to have you? (laughs) But this is the logic of the personal carbon footprint. You cast a shadow on the planet, which it is your moral duty to minimize. If you extend that logic to the question of whether it's okay to have a child, it's hard to see how the answer is anything other than no. When I look at those candy-colored graphs with cows and planes and babies, I see a glaring category error. Not having a child is not the same as choosing to live without a car or choosing a plant-based diet, plant-based diet. This framing reduces having a child to one consumer choice among many and displays a blithe naivete about what actually drives people. Over two decades ago, in Maybe One, Bill McKibben preached a neo-Malthusian sermon to his fellow affluent Americans about limiting damage to the planet by making the only child a, quote, cultural norm. McKibben and his wife have one child, and he writes, quote, what eventually made up our minds was largely simple desire, end quote, as if there has ever been anything simple about desire. Quote, like most, though certainly not all people, we felt some need deeper than deep to raise and nurture a child. Anything else may simply be justification. End quote. Indeed. As Emily Dickinson wrote, quote, the heart wants what it wants. And as Twitter more recently offered in a tweet, I am now unable to find, quote, the heart wants what it is conditioned to want. End quote. If that was your tweet, I'm really sorry. I really did try to find it. <laughs> Today, as desires are being conditioned by a baffling confluence of forces, the cultural fantasy of freedom and consumer choice, a sense of personal responsibility for global phenomenon, the pressures of increasingly precarious economic circumstances, and the profound terrors and deep mourning of ongoing ecological collapse, some people are choosing not to have children for reasons that can perhaps only be narrativized after the fact. Some say they don't want to bring a child into a devastated world, or that they don't want to harm the planet— or that they can't stomach the idea of watching their own child suffer in a degraded future. And then there is the moral imperative to erase that carbon footprint, which has all which has much more to do, which has as much to do with care for the environment and for other people as it has to do with relieving the misplaced burden of moral responsibility. In wealthy industrialized nations, we are now instructed to be better, greener consumers, to choose well. But do we have meaningful choices? what would it look like if we did? Just this past November, the logic of the carbon footprint got tangled up in ideas about global human population in ways that, for me, set off alarm bells. The idea that unchecked population growth heralds disaster is most often traced back to the English cleric and political economist Thomas Malthus, who warned in the late 1700s that, quote, the power of population is so superior to the power of the earth to produce substance for man that premature death must in some shape or other visit the human race, quote. In an essay on the principle of population, Malthus observed that when food production increased, standards, standards of living temporarily went up, which led in turn to population growth, thus decreasing standards of living once again. In other words, Humans tend to use abundant resources to create more humans rather than to ensure high standards of living. In time, he argued, population would grow until there was not enough food, so people would starve. Only the strong would survive. Malthusian thinking led scientists, economists, policymakers, and indeed whole populations to embrace social Darwinism and eugenics, resulting in the British Poor Laws, China's one child policy, and programs of forced sterilization in countries around the world. In Puerto Rico, between 1936 and the mid 1960s, the U.S. government cited growing population of the poor and unemployed as a reason to sterilize nearly 35% of all women of childbearing age. I am reminded of the Dickens character in Ebenezer Scrooge Dickens character Ebenezer Scrooge, who puppets Malthusian thinking when he says of people living in poverty quote, if they would rather die, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. More recently, fears for the future of humanity and agonized ethical debates over whether people should have children were reignited by Stanford professor Paul Ehrlich, whose 1968 bestseller, co-written with his uncredited wife Anne, The Population Bomb, predicted there would not be enough food to support humanity within a matter of years. They predicted that famines in the 1970s would kill hundreds of millions of people, the only solution to this impending horror, they said, was strict birth control measures. Quote, we must have population control at home, the Ehrlichs wrote, hopefully through a system of incentives and penalties, but by compulsion if voluntary methods fail. The birth rate must be brought into balance with the death rate, or mankind will breed itself into oblivion, end quote. As feminist scholar Sarah Franklin has pointed out, even Shulamith Firestone took demographers at their word and described the issue of global population as, quote, a genuine ecological problem with which no number of fancy arguments and bogey statistics can erase, end quote. The Ehrlich's most dire predictions did not come to pass, not because their calculations were flawed, but because they couldn't predict the future, The new technologies of the Green Revolution, which included new grain hybrids, irrigation systems, fertilizers, and pesticides, enabled a massive surge in global food production, averting global famines. But Malthusian thinking has never really been laid to rest. In 2012, reports from Uzbekistan revealed a pattern of forced sterilization for women who had two, or in some cases, three children, as part of efforts to keep population down. Women who are HIV positive have been subject to forced sterilization, and sterilization is still required for trans people seeking legal recognition in Japan. After Hurricane Katrina, one Louisiana state representative proposed paying people who receive state assistance $1,000 in exchange for being sterilized. He couched the proposal in terms of reducing the number of poor people and solving the problem of multiple generations on welfare citing budgetary concerns and the likelihood of more h- frequent hurricanes. This past November, Malthusian thinking converged with the carbon footprint in a statement published in the journal Bioscience, in which over 15,000 scientists working in fields other than climate science declared a climate emergency. Quote, the climate crisis has arrived and is accelerating faster than most scientists expected. It is more severe than anticipated, threatening natural ecosystems and the fate of humanity, End quote. The authors point to the risks of irreversible climate tipping points and outline three broad and fairly vague steps that could be taken now to reduce risk. Their concerns followed from a 1992 report that warned, quote, great change is required if vast human misery is to be avoided and our global home on this planet is not to be irretrievably mutilated, end quote, and that highlighted, quote, the pressures resulting from unrestrained population growth, end quote. When ecologist William Ripple, the lead author of what has been called The Second Warning, was interviewed by business insider, he said, quote, If an individual is concerned about climate change, three things to consider include, one, reducing use of fossil fuels, two, eating mostly a plant-based diet, and three, having fewer children. It is true that ecological limits are real. Without trees, everybody dies. Without fresh water, everybody dies. Since 1900, since 1900, global population has more than doubled while the renewable supply of fresh water has fallen, is distributed unevenly, and much of it is wasted, polluted, and unsustainably managed. Today, nearly half of humanity faces conditions of chronic water stress or scarcity, which will only worsen as the climate crisis unfolds. People living in North Africa and the Middle East will be hit hardest, than people in South Africa, Pakistan, and large swaths of China and India. Meanwhile, the total amount of land used to grow food has remained about the same, which means the amount of cropland per person on the planet has decreased by at least half. Constant production and unsustainable agricultural practices have led to declining soil quality, which means the food we produce now has fewer nutrients critical to human health and the poorer quality soil we do have left is eroding under poor human management and more extreme weather. One of the great boons of the Green Revolution, fertilizer, increases crop yields, if rarely essential nutrients, but it requires massive inputs of non-renewable resources, including fossil fuels and key minerals like phosphorus. Phosphorus, a non-renewable mineral found in phosphate rock, is essential to all life on Earth. While phosphorus can be recycled, it is currently being depleted at accelerating rates, which has led to fears of imminent peak phosphorus, as well as fears of phosphorus shortages due to geopolitical instability around regions like Morocco and China where the mineral is mined. There are currently about 7.8 billion people on the planet, and demographers predict that number will rise to roughly 10.9 billion by the end of this century. For some, the relationship between global human population and ecological limits leads to visions of a world with fewer humans. In Staying with the Trouble, radical feminist icon Donna Haraway suggests the increase in global population expected over the 21st century will, quote, make demands that cannot be borne without immense damage to humans and non-human beings across the earth, end quote. And she looks hopefully toward, quote, personal, intimate decisions to make flourishing and generous lives without making more babies, end quote. Here and in a collection co-edited with Adele E. Clark called Making Kin Not Population, Haraway imagines an ecotopia of collective, non-racist, non-coercive kinnovation. She muses that, quote, maybe the human people of this planet can again be numbered two or three billion or so over a couple hundred years from now. The most generous reading of Haraway, a trained biologist who left the field because she didn't believe in the concept of cells, suggests that she values life above all else, that she envisions a world in which thriving ecosystems, with all their interconnectedness and blurred boundaries, are to be valued above any one species. But this utopia is hard to imagine without also thinking about the bloody path that would lead to it. As Jenny Turner responded in the LRB, quote, I was horrified. How can a planet lose seven or eight billion humans over a couple hundred years without events of indiscriminate devastation? When people start thinking about getting rid of other people, which sorts of people does history suggest are usually got rid of first, End quote. This is the same arithmetic that feeds eco-fascist fantasies coursing through the online deep green right, and which helped incite mass shooters in Texas and New Zealand. In these darker visions of the future, racial purity will save the planet, Closed borders, veganism, drastically reduced technology, eco-fascist death squads, hashtag EFDS. This is an ideology of death that claims to be on the side of life. Quote, what to do when a ship carrying a hundred passengers suddenly capsizes and there is only one lifeboat, writes Penti Linkola, a notorious Finnish polemicist of eco-fascism. Quote, when the lifeboat is full, those who hate life will try to load it with more people and sink the lot. Those who love and respect life will take the ship's axe and sever the extra hands that cling to the sides, end quote. Who is extra remains the purview of those holding the axe. Having children is to be tightly regulated. Quote, birth giving must be licensed, he writes, to enhance population quality, genetically or socially unfit homes will be denied offspring so that several birth licenses can be allowed to families of quality, end quote. Deep ecology and the Third Reich serve as inspiration Haraway and Lincoln would each likely be horrified to be associated with the thinking of the other, but they share a core value, radical care for the natural world as anarchist and social theorist Murray Bookchin pointed out t- two decades ago, quote, it would be foolhardy to ignore the tendency of anti humanism, particularly trends like sociobiology, Malthusianism, and deep ecology, to feed into the politically charged social Darwinism that is very much abroad today. End quote. Since he wrote those words, the charge has increased, and we have seen a global surge in white nationalism and fascist ideologies. The racial politics of any proposal for a world less peopled cannot be ignored. These days, you can hear Malthusian thinking converging with the carbon footprint to racist ends in surprising places. Listen closely to rights based and social justice language proposing strategies to reduce carbon emissions through increased access to contraception and family planning. These strategies almost always involve black and brown women in developing nations having fewer babies. There is no doubt an unmet need for reproductive care and birth control in developing nations, but we should be deeply skeptical of climate solutions that place the burden of solving the problem onto women's bodies, particularly the bodies of poor black and brown women, while demanding very little of those who have actually caused the problem. What's more, developing nations tend to have much lower per capita income than the countries where such proposals tend to originate. Regions like sub-Saharan Africa have among the lowest carbon emissions, while the U.S., which is home to less than 5% of the world's population, is responsible for 15% of all emissions globally. Increasing access to birth control for women in the global south, and the goal of redu- with the goal of reducing emissions, all but jettisons the possibility of reproductive justice, which supports every woman's right to choose how many children she wants to have. Liberal feminism and reproductive rights advocates speak of the right to family planning, focusing on the right not to have children as a form of resistance against the constant cultural demand to reproduce. More radical feminisms seek to to construct a broader framework that includes people whose reproduction, both biological and cultural, has been brutally discouraged by the same systems that support reproduction by others. Quote, Not making babies is never much related to the objective of building counterpower, writes Sophie Lewis in a response to Haraway in Viewpoint magazine. Quote, even if universal flourishing is easier to imagine when fewer humans are in the picture, desiring fewer humans is a terrible starting point for any politics that hopes to include, let alone center, those of us for whom making babies has often represented a real form of resistance. Today, in Palestine, for example, some women whose husbands have been imprisoned use sperm smuggled out to get pregnant. Perhaps instead of keeping a narrow focus trained on the right not to have children, a feminism informed by the climate crisis would focus on the right to raise children in a healthy environment. Some have suggested that we should be fighting for the right to have a carbon-neutral child. There are no good programs for global population control. And it's not just because it's anti-feminist, racist, and anti-human, but because it's impossible for science to put an upper limit on how many people is too many people for planet Earth. Any attempt to calculate the planet's so-called carrying capacity is highly controversial because the relationship between population and environment relies on a complex interplay of intermediary forces including institutions, markets, technology, and patterns of consumption that is not well understood. In other words, it's not just the total number of humans that matters, but how humans organize to use available resources. Today, by most metrics, we're doing terribly. The systems in place have already proved incapable of meeting the needs of the global population. According to the UN, 820 million people are suffering from hunger, and every year, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people die of starvation. At the same time, the USDA estimates that in the U.S. alone, 30 to 40 percent of food is wasted, calories dumped from various points along the supply chain into landfill, along with the energy, water, and labor required to produce them. We know that limits exist, resources are finite, and we could be closer than we think to some boundaries we don't want to cross. But it's dangerous to assume we know, with any specificity, what those limits are, and to start curbing births or lives accordingly. If placing the responsibility for the climate crisis on individuals is wrongheaded, placing it on all of humanity is barbarous. The least bad option might be to focus environmental efforts elsewhere, on decarbonization, for example, and leave global population alone. Since the 1960s, the rate of population growth has been slowing, and demographers now predict that by the end of the century, for the first time in human history, the world's population will stop growing altogether. This is largely due to falling fertility rates. The explosion of total humans on the planet in recent decades, it turns out, isn't due to people having babies, but rather to people living longer, to falling mortality rates. Today, roughly half the people in the world live in countries with below replacement fertility rates, including in the US, Europe, Japan, much of Latin America, and parts of India. Women in these countries have, on average, fewer than two children. And this list of countries is lengthening. Contra Malthusian Malthusian reasoning, many people are using abundant resources to ensure higher standards of living rather than to create more humans. At the same time, researchers are warning that the chemical revolution that produced pesticides has also led to a dramatic drop in male fertility. We are all ingesting chemicals that mess with human hormones, and in the last four decades, sperm counts in men around the world have dropped by 50%. This means that men today are half as fertile as their grandfathers were, and that humanity may be incapable of unassisted reproduction within a matter of decades. At this particular moment in history, the ecological health of the planet may be less endangered by how many babies are born than by the colonial export of a culture of overconsumption. In some liberal democracies, even as a growing global population is seen as an existential threat to humanity, falling national birth rates are seen as a domestic crisis. Quote, Can a progressive, reproductive, freedom-embracing society survive over time? Asks historian Trent McNamara in The Atlantic. Quote, or is it doomed to a slow, comfortable death? End quote. The concern is that less babies means a diminishing supply of workers who will increasingly struggle to bankroll a heavily indebted welfare state, where, as McNamara dispassionately puts it, quote, citizens confront periodic eruptions of nativism. End quote. Many countries already rely on immigration to keep up the supply of workers necessary to an economy predicated on growth. But even immigrants who come from high-fertility countries are quick to adapt to cultural norms of having fewer kids within a generation or two, so the demand for immigrant workers stays high. It's no coincidence that in Charlottesville you hear the white supremacists chant, quote, you will not replace us. All the while, we keep dumping carbon into the atmosphere far faster than nature can take it out. Ecofascist math puts the earth-carrying capacity at half a billion Haraway's utopian vision puts it at 2.3 billion. A recent paper in Nature Sustainability put the limit at 7 billion, beyond which it would be hard to sustain a, quote, high quality of life. But even if we could somehow agree on a number, reducing global population, if it were even possible, would take generations, and we need to cut carbon emissions now. Even eco-fascist genocide would not move fast enough to address the crisis of global emissions. World War II killed 2 to 3% of the world's population. Getting from 8 billion to 3 billion people on this planet would mean doing away with 6 out of 10 people living today, 60% of the human population, to say nothing of the babies being born. If we act now to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels, there's the chance of a better outcome for more people. If we act now to reduce global population, catastrophe is assured. The question bears asking, what humanity are we preserving? In recent years, some people concerned about the climate crisis, including Bill McKibben and the computer scientist Benjamin Kuypers, have been ruminating on a canonical AI thought experiment. In this thought experiment, researchers gave an artificial intelligence the innocuous goal of maximizing the production of paper clips. Like most of today's AI, it will only ever act with singular focus to achieve its goal, It won't be turned from the task we've set. In time, this AI diverts more and more of the powers of the planet toward making paperclips, to the point that people become alarmed and try to turn it off. But they can't because this is a super smart AI that has made itself smarter, not because it values intelligence, but because being smarter helps it achieve its goal of maximizing paperclip production. So it finds a way to ensure we can't turn it off, because then how would it keep making paperclips? And at some point, this AI decides that keeping humans alive is detrimental to its goal because humans need resources, and in fact, humans are resources, and all these resources could be used to make more paperclips. With utter indifference, then, to the existence of humanity, it keeps trying to maximize the number of paperclips in its collection, turning more and more of everything into paperclips until the earth is transformed and increasing areas of space are pulled into paperclip production and the world as we know it is reduced to one giant pile of paperclips. The point of this thought experiment, known as the paperclip maximizer and first proposed by Oxford philosopher Nick Bostrom, is to ask how AI, even one designed without malice, could pose an existential threat to humanity. It is, not incidentally, a pretty good metaphor for a global socioeconomic system that values the production of profit above all else. In a sense, this is just the sort of experiment we're all living in, one in which fossil fuel companies that act in accordance with the goal of maximizing profit have become an existential threat to humanity. It may not have escaped your notice as you entered this hall for tonight's lecture that we are gathered in the BP Lecture Theater. <laughs> it could be argued that gathering here tonight under the banner of BP is morally compromised, that we are giving tacit approval to BP's existentially threatening efforts, and that any point made in the house that BP built is already fatally flawed. Worse than compromised, we are complicit. This is more or less the message I received over the holidays when I was contacted by a group called BP or not BP. At the time, I was not aware that I would be giving this lecture in the BP Lecture Theater or that there is an active campaign to end oil sponsorship of the British Museum. It made me wonder, what is BP doing in a museum anyway? The question is worth exploring here in this lecture hall because BP's corporate sponsorship of the arts is part of a much larger plan that affects us all. In early 2019, BP launched a massive global PR campaign under the thematic rubric of Possibilities Everywhere that paints the oil giant as committed to a cleaner, greener future. Perhaps you've seen BP's QE2 Reservoir ad, which features a young woman cheerily popping open an an umbrella to deal with, quote, unpredictable weather on her way to work in a clothing boutique, followed by shots of a gleaming, floating solar panel array, as a reassuring woman's voice explains that, quote, BP is partnering with LightSource, Europe's largest solar company, end quote. Or maybe you've seen the family spot, which begins with an alarm clock going off and a baby lying in a crib, mother's arms reaching in, then a montage of a family's busy morning, as a soothing woman's voice says, quote, Welcome to our busy world, where we all want more energy with less carbon footprint. This PR campaign preceded a similar one, launched just this January by the American Petroleum Institute, the largest American trade group for oil and gas, representing over 600 corporations, including BP America. Dubbed Energy for Progress, the API's new seven-figure campaign is aimed at convincing the public that the fossil fuel industry is, after decades of spending billions of dollars on disinformation and political lobbying campaigns to successfully stall climate action, a good faith partner in the fight against climate change, one of the main forces, in fact, fighting the good fight. The new ads feature young scientists gathered smiling over beakers, grinning young business owners dreaming big dreams, and an attractive cast of everyday characters that signal diversity and progressive values. If you have seen the ads, and they've been hard to avoid, you'd be forgiven for thinking that renewable energy is now a core component of BP's business strategy. You might understandably think that the fossil fuel industry is investing heavily in a greener future. You would be wrong. The International Energy Agency, which keep ta- keeps tabs on all the major players in the industry, released a report last month that belies all the smiling young scientists in white lab coats and semi erotic shots of solar grids and slowly rotating wind turbines. Renewable energy and carbon capture technologies currently represent slightly less than 1% of the industry's investments. BP does slightly better than some of its competitors, with clean energy amounting to about 3% of the company's total capital expenditure program. While envir- environmentalist groups have long accused the fossil fuel industry of greenwashing, these new PR campaigns grossly misrepresent what fossil fuel companies actually do and what internal documents confirm they plan to continue doing far into the future, which is extracting and selling increasing amounts of fossil fuels. In Major Projects 2019, BP reports that in 2018, it started seven major oil and gas projects, up from six the year before, which will, quote, make a huge contribution to the 900,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day of new production. BP, to be fair, has been interested in renewables for decades. They just can't figure out how to make them profitable. As outgoing CEO Bob Dudley, who retired last week, told Axios in 2018, quote, quote, if someone said, here's $10 billion, go invest it in these new tech- energy technologies, for the good of our shareholders, we're not confident enough to be able to do that yet. End quote. Which is sort of the point. If the interests of shareholders, the goal of maximizing profit, comes into conflict with the public good, profit always wins. The problem is not just BP, this problem is structural. BP is legally obligated to act in its shareholders' interests not to maximize profit, would be illegal. In a sense, we can see embodied in fossil fuel companies the problem that both Haraway and Lincola are trying to solve, the problem of how to circumvent the suicidal logic of the profit motive. While Haraway and Lincola end up choosing to embrace different kinds of anti-humanism, fossil fuel companies have no choice. Under modern capitalism and corporate law, they have to choose profit. They have to be anti-human. The one thing that differentiates these companies from the paperclip maximizer is that they can't keep making profit and also do away with humanity altogether. Oil companies need workers, and they need consumers. So the profit motive is driving them toward their own destruction as well. Which is not to say it would be pro-human if these companies should cease to exist tomorrow. We depend on the energy they provide for food, clean water, light, and so much more. If the energy provided by fossil fuels were stripped suddenly from human society, the result would be a catastrophe of truly horrifying dimensions. Imagine what would happen in London and Bangladesh and Lagos if the lights went out, and food distribution stopped, and heat and air conditioning went off, and hospitals stopped being able to provide care. The climate crisis affords no easy answers." But the fact remains that BP's incredibly lucrative business model and the products they sell are fundamentally at odds with human survival on this planet, and they have spent billions of dollars to make us believe otherwise. This past December, the nonprofit legal group client Earth filed a complaint that BP is misleading consumers in its new global ad campaign. One lawyer called it "quote smokescreen," but the most accurate description is probably propaganda. You and I have lived our whole lives bombarded with the message that fossil fuels are good, that they are necessary for progress. Because without public support, or at least acquiescence, fossil fuel companies can't keep doing business, and they know it. This is what the industry refers to as the social license to operate. On her podcast, Drilled, climate journalist Amy Westervelt tells the story of a man named Ivy Ledbetter Lee, who helped create modern PR and wrote the propaganda playbook for the fossil fuel industry. Lee invented the press release, the press conference, and perfected the tight control of language. He said the thing companies need to worry about most is getting the public on their side. He learned this while rehabilitating the reputation of John D. Rockefeller after the Ludlow Massacre, in which striking coal miners and their families, including children, were brutally gunned down at a mine Rockefeller owned. Lee helped turn Rockefeller from, quote, a man routinely described as the most hated man in America into a kindly philanthropist who was widely admired, end quote. Lee's education continued while he was working on war propaganda efforts during World War I. As Westervelt explains, the experience taught him that if you can pool together enough resources into a big group that can't be tracked, you can wage a multi-front, quote, all-out psychological war that's impossible to beat, end quote. After the war, Lee worked with the head of Standard Oil of New Jersey, which later became ExxonMobil, to form API. API is the same trade organization representing over 600 oil companies now spending billions of dollars on that new PR campaign. But it's not just ads. Fossil fuel propaganda goes wide and deep. According to environmental sociologist Robert Bruhl, the fossil fuel industry has been running educational outreach in American elementary and secondary schools since at least the 1960s. Which is to say, fossil fuel companies have spent billions of dollars on a multi-generational propaganda campaign to make us believe that the world cannot exist without them. They have also worked hard to avoid accountability for the climate crisis. In fact, it was BP that first popularized the idea of the personal carbon footprint. In 2005, they launched a U.S. media campaign costing over $100 million per year that featured the personal carbon footprint, which cleverly deflected responsibility for combating climate change away from the company and onto the individual consumer. They even created an online calculator where you could tally up your own personal footprint. Since then, carbon calculators have proliferated, You'll find them on sites like Choose Climate, Co- Climate Care, and Resurgence. As one Guardian article helpfully advised, quote, having derived an estimate from your carbon footprint, you'll need to think about how to trim it, end quote. The article offers no advice on how you might hold fossil fuel companies accountable. On the BP Education Services webpage, the part of their website targeted to schoolchildren, there is a, quote, carbon footprint toolkit designed for kids that includes, quote, an interactive activity on the topic of carbon footprints and how energy use and climate change are connected, end quote, as well as a tool to calculate the carbon footprint of your school. In other words, the narrative that you personally are responsible for the climate crisis has been carefully crafted and drilled into you by the fossil fuel industry. In October 2019, BP rolled out a new carbon footprint calculator, the embrace of personal choice as a climate solution could be described as a shrewd business practice and also as a failure of imagination on our part. Though it could be argued that fossil fuel companies are astonishingly good at imagining the future, what I'm about to read you comes from an internal document written for Royal Dutch Shell 20 years ago called Group Scenarios 1998-2020, it sketches out two possible scenarios for the future as imagined from the vantage point of 1998, one of which describes a world that sounds eerily familiar. Quote, following the storms, a coalition of environmental NGOs brings a class action suit against the U.S. government and fossil fuel companies on the grounds of neglecting what scientists, including their own, have been saying for years, that something must be done. A social reaction to the use of fossil fuels grows, and individuals become vigilante environmentalists in the same way a generation earlier they had become fiercely anti tobacco. Direct action campaigns against companies escalate. Young consumers, especially, demand action. According to climate journalist Emily Atkin, this document indicates that Shell was able to predict that violent climate fueled storms climate change-fueled storms will eventually hit the United States, that these storms will cause a youth-led uprising against fossil fuel companies, that the youth uprising will seek to hold fossil fuel companies financially accountable for damages caused by those storms, that a lawsuit will be filed against fossil fuel companies seeking said damages, that the lawsuits will argue fossil fuel companies knew their products would cause catastrophic climate impacts and ignored it, and that this movement will closely resemble the anti-tobacco movement. This was 20 years ago. In other words, Atkin writes, quote, Shell not only knew about the massive harm its business model posed to life on Earth, Shell knew for decades how the harm their products caused could change the political, legal, and cultural landscape. They're not scared, she writes. They're prepared. As Shell's document has it, quote, reputation is key to success. Corporations will, in the future they have imagined, have to respond to climate change with exactly the kind of propaganda that we're seeing today. They will need to convince people they are, quote, making the world a better place, in square quotes, by spreading market capitalism, encouraging political pluralism, providing employment, and modeling cultural diversity and environmental concern wherever they go, end quote. Today, in a real world that looks a lot like Shell's imagined scenario, fossil fuel companies are trying to thread a nearly impossible needle to appear serious about addressing the climate crisis while planning for a future of increased demand. In 2008, BP announced it would try to generate enough carbon emission reductions by 2025 to, quote, ensure that as our business grows, our carbon footprint does not, end quote. Just two days ago, the new CEO of BP, Bernard Looney, yes, that's his actual name, made a surprising announcement. He said that the company will, quote, stop corporate reputation advertising as part of a new pledge to become a net zero company by 2025. BP says the ads and the possibilities everywhere campaign will disappear and that the money that was being spent on them will be redirected, quote, to promote net zero policies, ideas, actions, collaborations, and its own net zero ambition, end quote. BP says it will, among other things, aim for a 50% cut in the carbon emissions of the products it sells, increase investments in non-oil and gas companies, quote, over time, and, quote, more actively advocate for policies supporting net zero, including carbon pricing. This is an unprecedented announcement from a big oil company. But 2025 is a long way off, and the plan lacks details. Looney says announcements this coming September will make the company's plans clearer. It remains to be seen if this is truly a reinvention of a fossil fuel company, an expression of aspiration without much follow-fuel, or yet another savvy PR move. BP has made big promises in the past, most famously when it tried to rebrand itself as Beyond Petroleum in 2000. That effort fizzled when the company couldn't turn profit on investments in renewables and went back to business as usual. As Harvard researcher Jeffrey Supran told me, BP's track record offers reason for concern that this net zero announcement may be yet another veil of propaganda that wins them social and political capital, but fails to deliver action commensurate with the problem. We shall see. Meanwhile, API and the fossil fuel industry continue to oppose regulation of methane, block carbon taxes, and fund climate deniers. Remember the guy with the snowball? He's one of their favorites all while touting the earth-saving possibilities of carbon capture technologies that have never gone beyond expensive pilots and are undeployable at scale. This is where corporate sponsorship of institutions like the British Museum comes into play. What BP is buying, the social license to operate, is far more valuable than the funding they can offer the arts. In recent years, under pressure from divestment movements spearheaded by groups like BP or Not BP, cultural institutions have begun to back away from fossil fuel sponsorship. The logic of divestment movements is this. If you can turn fossil fuel companies into social pariahs, you can erode their social license to operate, which can help create the political space needed to propose and pass policies to address the climate crisis. Tate, the Edinburgh International Festival, the Royal Shakespeare Company, have all ended sponsorship deals with BP. And just over a week ago, The Guardian became the first major newspaper in the world to ban fossil fuel ads. Quote, our decision, reads a statement issued on the 29th of January, is based on the decades long effort by many in the industry to prevent meaningful climate action by governments around the world, end quote. BP's relationship with the British Museum will be up for review next year, and from where I'm standing, it looks like the museum has an opportunity to show leadership by ending the sponsorship deal. Think back for a moment to that framing of the climate crisis that inspires candy-colored graphs with cars and cows and babies. The one that says you are personally responsible for your emissions and the emissions of your children. That one that so blithely follows the narrative path laid out by fossil fuel propagandists who gave you the carbon footprint. Framing responses to the climate crisis in terms of personal choice also obscures the potential impact of collective actions, such as divestment movements. Collective action is always more effective than personal choice. An, acti- an action that moves us toward decarbonizing faster might help avoid the worst climate outcomes, create space for creative and more just ways to organize human societies, and leave a world less ruined for future generations. I have spent more time than I'd like to admit scrolling through posts by people who have made the decision not to have children because of the climate crisis. These posts radiate varying degrees of fear, despair, political commitment, solidarity, anxiety, and an almost impossibly poignant care and delight for, care for and delight in already existing children. One poster writes, quote, I always imagined myself having children. However, I have felt incredibly hopeless for our future for many years because of the inaction of governments on climate change. I love kids and feel deeply saddened by this, but I would not willingly want to bring a child into a world I see will be plagued by disaster, ruin, famine, and wars, total destruction. I am terrified for what our planet will be in just a few years, end quote. Another poster writes, quote, The science is clear. We are about to witness the destruction of everything we love because of the climate crisis. I feel incapable of welp- welcoming an innocent human being into this world knowing the facts. End quote. This sort of fatalism concerns climate scientists, many of whom are struggling to convey the profound risks they see inscribed on the planet and in their data, while also making it clear that scientific probability is not prediction. None of the future scenarios that scientists have outlined are inevitable. They are more or less likely, depending on what we do today. This is not to say there is a gradual, linear path along which our future prospects slide, molecule by molecule. The carbon system is a stochastic, chaotic system, with tipping points that scientists don't fully understand and may not even recognize as they are crossed. No one knows what happens when this much carbon gets dumped into the Earth's atmosphere in such a short amount of time. Even the effects of the carbon we have already released remains unknown. According to one widely cited study, there is a 13% chance that we are already committed to 1.5 degrees warming by the end of the century, which leaves an 87% chance that we are not. Depending on your disposition, you may interpret this as good news, 87%, or as terrible news, 13%. But we do know that more carbon in the atmosphere heats the planet, while less carbon cools it, and humans have a greater chance of flourishing on a cooler planet. The future may, not be, the future may be more determined than it has been in the past, but the future is not written, not in stone, and not in carbon. I'm hesitant even to mention uncertainty in the same breath as climate science because of the way climate deniers and obstructionists, especially those fueled by the fossil fuel industry, have latched onto the idea of uncertainty as a reason to delay climate action. But I think it is worth trying to wrap our heads around climate science as best we can to orient ourselves better toward the possibilities of the future. Climate science is unlike most other sciences in that it is working with an N of one, Other sciences proceed by making predictions about how natural phenomena work, then running experiments to test the strength of those predictions. A scientific law accurately predicts the results of certain initial conditions, where a stone will land if launched with a certain force at a certain angle, the color of your unborn child's eyes. But there is no other earth on which to run experiments. So climate scientists build models using known physical laws, then test and improve them with data. A climate model is, as scientist and astronaut Pierce Sellers put it in the New Yorker, theory written in code. These models are incomplete and are constantly being updated based on new findings that can accelerate, slow, or complicate trajectories. Models are also missing processes that researchers aren't even aware of yet, which has kept more than one climate researcher awake at night. Researchers have struggled to model carbon cycle feedbacks, for example, and there could be some devastating surprises there. Then there is the speed at which fossil fuels have been extracted and burned, in large part by industrialized nations in the past 150 years, resulting in the astonishing rate at which atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations are increasing. Geological records show that increasing concentrations of carbon dioxide in Earth's atmosphere caused extreme warming events and massive ecological upheaval in the past. During the Paleo-Eocene Thermal Maximum, when carbon levels spiked and temperatures increased as much as 8 degrees Celsius, it took 10,000 to 20,000 years for temperatures to peak. This is considered extremely rapid. The current rate of change is unprecedented. And then there's people and the systems we build. As climate scientist Kate Marvel recently told an audience in New York, quote, quote, I watch climate change happen every day on a computer, on a fake planet that I can do experiments on. But climate change doesn't happen on a fake planet. It happens on our planet, in the world that we've built. You can't put Bashar al-Assad in a climate model. You can't put the legacy of colonialism in a climate model. The drying trend we've seen in the Levant region interacts with the world we've actually built. Climate change is not something you can remove from the complexities of human society— those complexities may mean the difference between a better and worse catastrophe. All of which is to say, the consequences of today's heating climate are extremely difficult to predict. On a global scale, pessimism may be warranted. Fatalism is not. The real choice we face in terms of global emissions is not whether to eat meat or how many children to have, but how to make profound, rapid structural changes without which none of the choices made at the personal level will matter. As one climate scientist recently put it to me, fuck hope. She's currently pregnant with her second child. When my son was born, language left. This was how it felt during the hours of hard labor when I slipped inward, further and further away from the outside world. I stopped thinking in sentences, then lost phrases, then words. Eventually, it was like being at the bottom of a deep, dark well looking up at the kind and focused faces far away, hearing voices drift down quite clearly, but being unable, or perhaps unmoved, to respond. This was not frightening. I was simply elsewhere, too profoundly busy to bother with all that far-off noise. I remember at one point being distinctly aware of my mind, the conscious everyday mind that talks to itself and to other people, the self where language is so loud, Floating like pond scum on top of the vast rich dark where I now labored. A wordless inner world of sensation and drive to which I had never before had access. I was two selves at once. A double consciousness. If needed, I knew I could still speak to the people around me from the chattering everyday mind. But it seemed so silly and small up there. I let it go. Later, I remember being exhausted and looking out through a window into gray sky and understanding that time had passed and it was storming. I thought I could not push again, and then I did, and again, and again. There was a moment I can only describe as coming to. That's what it felt like, that I had blacked out and was waking into the room, flooding back into myself, and my son had arrived. Afterward, the first time I read a story of birth that described it as an encounter with death, I remember thinking, that's not how it was at all. I was not willing to go to pieces. I had work to do. But then the overwhelming demand to which every fiber of my being had been tuned, the demand to let the baby out, was not separable from the feeling that I had entered into something much larger than myself and that my sense of self was unraveling and that the only way out was through. Maybe that is what it feels like to go to pieces. You have to risk life to give life. And then such profound sweetness and previously unimagined possibility on the other side. I can understand why some people might see having a child as a turn toward death, a fatal complicity with the death spiral of global fossil capitalism. But for me, having a child has been a commitment to life, and a commitment to the possibilities of a human future on this warming planet. It means giving up claims to moral purity, not because nothing matters, but because things do. Quote, Staying open and willing is difficult, writes Louise Erdrich. Very often in labor, one must fight the instinct to resist pain and instead embrace it, move towards it, work with what hurts the most, end quote. It is increasingly delusional to believe that global heating will be kept under two degrees Celsius. And even if we heroically manage to keep heating below 1.5 degrees, the target set by signatories of the Paris Agreement, almost all of whom are currently blowing past their unenforceable emission reduction commitments, we will still see wrenching ecological and social disruptions. The climate we have right now, the one in which people are facing devastating crop failures, fires, floods, and water shortages, one in which fisheries are collapsing and pollinators are disappearing from increasingly silent springs— one in which millions of people are being forced from their homes in what is already the largest human migration since the last ice age, is the best world for human flourishing we're likely to see in our lifetimes. Everything is going to change. Even the most optimistic scenarios are fraught with uncertainty and potential catastrophe, but also the possibility of a renewed sense of futurity. Before I got pregnant, my partner and I tried to parse the ethics of having a child at such a time. What is the risk to the world, to the child, to us? Was the risk worth taking, and was the alternative a better or worse kind of risk? In the end, not having a child didn't seem, for us, like a powerful or particularly meaningful response to the realities of a changing climate. It seemed like the toxic logic of the carbon footprint, shaping our sense of what was possible and why. Only two babies, Prince Harry assured the readers of British Vogue, following a calculus that says, only replace yourself and add no more. Only one, Bill McKibben implores us, the planet needs us to be fewer. None, says Donna Haraway, urging us to imagine bonds beyond the biological, as we are already far too many. None for you, say the eco-fascists, or you, or you, or you. This is the moral logic of the carbon footprint at work, winnowing us to death. Taken to its logical extreme, it leads directly to suicide. You incrementally diminish your impact on the earth by making choices from whatever limited range of options are available, but at some point this logic demands you stop consuming altogether. Early one morning in April 2018, just around the time I was passing from the first into the second trimester of pregnancy, civil rights lawyer and environmental activist David Buckle sat down in a park not far from where I live doused himself with lighter fluid, struck a match, and lit himself on fire. Buckle left a note sitting in a nearby shopping cart, exhorting people to live less selfish lives to protect the planet. Quote, Honorable purpose in life invites honorable purpose in death, he wrote. Also, quote, I apologize to you for the mess, end quote. A friend called me later that morning after the news broke to tell me that he had been on an early morning run in the park and had seen the smoldering pile of Buckle's corpse. He had not known what he was looking at. This suicidal logic also works in absurdum at the scale of the human species. A website for the Voluntary Human Extinction Project, a movement named by Les U. Knight, whose political orientation is anarchy, asserts that, quote, phasing out the human race by voluntarily ceasing to breed will allow Earth's biosphere to return to good health, end quote. Here the moral calculus is clear. Quote, the decision to stop reproducing is still the morally correct one. If, like me, you're unwilling to embrace suicide, then you may need to find a way to live somewhere else along a spectrum that ends in death. As someone who values human life, I believe in the possibility of human flourishing on this planet while also acknowledging the profound barriers already in place and the profound risks which are not shared equally by all people, now posed by ecological catastrophe. Those who are concerned with the very real and deeply uncertain threats posed by ecological limits may find this naive, but I shudder in horror at the alternatives, which can only guarantee a barbarous future. I have to believe there are ways that children today might learn to live lives with some joy in the midst of whatever is to come. This is not to say that if you love life, you should have a biological child. Far from it, I rather think the point is that no one should tell anyone else whether they should procreate or not. One does not have to birth a child to believe in the possibility of a human future. Is it still okay to have a child? This seems like the wrong question in a world where our lives are intertwined, complicit, and interdependent in ways we are still, at last, just beginning to understand. It runs the risk of mistaking agency for power at a moment when the stakes are extremely high. As climate scientists wrote in the journal Nature this past November, evidence is mounting that climate tipping points are more likely to occur and to occur at lower levels of global heating than previously thought, possibly just one to two degrees. It seems to me that we are right to worry about the future and to build a better language for what we owe to each other, but not to build a future out of bones. We need language for this, the intersection of a desire to have children with the knowledge of the climate crisis. I would like to make a portmanteau, but is there even a word for desire to have a child? Or a word for desire to not harm the planet? Or desire to see humans continue into the future? Perhaps what we really need is a word for desire to have a child and also to save the planet, regardless of how irrational such desires might be. It seems as if we need better ways to think the contradictions and hold complex and sometimes contradictory truths in mind. The future will always be more terrible and wonderful than any of us can possibly imagine. What will the climate crisis look like in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? We don't know. How fast can we achieve global decarbonization? We don't know. This uncertainty both inspires dread and allows for the possibility of hope. Not the false hope that global economies driven by fossil fuels can chug along as they have for too long already, or that the comforts, excesses, and relative safety of industrialized nations will be preserved, but hope for the possibility of human flourishing in unprecedented and as yet unimaginable circumstances. Thank you. Uh,
0: hello, um, my name is Alistair Curry. I'm the head of campaigns at an organization called Population Matters. We've just heard a, a long and impassioned and very interesting speech talking, associating the cause that I stand for with things like ecofascism, anti-humanism, uh, uh, and stupidity and n- n- recognizing the need for systems change and many other issues. That isn't the case. There is a strong, powerful, passionate, progressive case for looking at the number of people that are on the earth and asking the question, Is this something that's going to help our world, that's going to help to avert crisis? Are there positive things that improve people's lives and increase global justice that we can do in order to address that as individuals and as a society? That is the case. I ask you, please, to go away, to have a look at populationmatters.org website with an open mind, and be aware that what you've heard in many cases it is not a question I've just I've just learned I've just heard about how what I believe and what I'm committed to and the values of the people that I work with are associated with eco-fascism so forgive me
1: I think think this is uh, not a question
0: I'm nearly done I'm nearly done it's not a question but I I I just say I simply urge people with an open mind to to, here's my question please with an open mind look at (laughs) populationmatters.org
1: well done sir
0: (laughs) thank you I can't compete with an hour's worth of uh, of talking, but I, I leave to your judgment to look at this objectively. Thank you. And now other people may ask questions.
1: I think that's not a question, but I think people feel very differently and very deeply and have very impassioned views on this. Um, and so I appreciate you for, for listening.
0: Thank you. Thank you. What do you have to, be, to say about, my understanding is that the... Psychological research suggests that parents, on average, are significantly less happy than non-parents. <laughs>
1: um, I think that data is fairly robust. <laughs> um, but actually, I think you will find that um, women, in fact, tend to be less, happier than, less happy than men, um, and they tend to be less happy in relation to the amount of work that men are also doing in the household to help raise that child. Um, I think it's also true that they tend to be less happy in the earlier Stages of the, the child's life in like babyhood, possibly? and then my, my, they my do point, tend to yeah. be happier later on in life. Yeah, yeah. My, my, my point is essentially um, we are doing
0: things like having children is obviously causing damage to the planet, but apparently it's also causing damage to the people who are having the child. So, why is there a moral imperative to encourage or sort of not
1: tell people to take a closer look at that? Again, I think it depends on the time scale that you look at. I think that people that do have families and people that are, and I'm going to frame this in a, in a careful way, not just biological children, but people that are well connected to other people in the world tend to report higher levels of happiness. Um, I also think that you, you can't predict what's going to happen when you have a child, and so, making a decision before the fact based on some kind of desired metric of happiness that you want to achieve in your life is maybe not the right way to be making that particular decision. Where does um, adoption fit into your narrative? Where did what? I'm sorry. Where does adoption fit? Into adoption. Your oh, I think. Adoption is a great way to have a family. Um, I think yes, is how that fits into my narrative.
0: (laughs) Um, I mean, maybe specifically
1: uh, large migratory groups
2: of people who have been displaced and perhaps an imperative for wealthier societies to choose to adopt instead
1: of... I think that there are great and really complicated arguments around that. But yes, I'm going to leave it at that because it's so complicated. I don't want to to wade into that. But yes, I think there are really, really good arguments for adoption and that being a way to to make family. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Hi, Mihan. Thank you. That was such a wonderful lecture on so many levels. I'm from VP or not VP. Thank you for covering that. (laughs) We we are here. I have not met anyone from this group (laughs) yet. We spend Saturday (laughs) night here, so it's nice to be back so soon.
2: (laughs) Um, I wondered if you might um, touch on, you you already said a
1: lot of really important stuff, the response that we often get from the director of the museum, Hartwig Fisher, is a sense of, this has nothing to do with me. And I wondered if you might respond to that specific point a little bit, the, the role of, of museums, culture, galleries, and so on. I mean, I think, I feel like I said it in, in the talk, but I will say it again. I do think that it's important for cultural institutions to consider what it is they're giving when they allow a fossil fuel company to associate themselves with a very respected and very well well, well seen organization um, that, is, that is cultural capital that they're giving to those companies and so it, it's not there are no, um, there are no flood, like barriers between the, the corporation what it does and, the, and the, the cultural institution and what it does in that sense they, they are linked I would not speak for the museum and I will not speak for the director of the museum and why he would say that particular thing but that's how I see it thanks
2: Hi, uh, I'm Christina thanks a lot it was very interesting I would like to go back to your personal choice and also maybe uh, about the way you ended up saying what you said tonight I mean you went maybe through some self-doubt or what has been like your, your path I'm very interested because it has been I mean it's a very thoughtful mm-hmm. consideration you, you told us
1: tonight so yeah. yeah I think I've been writing about the climate crisis for many years mm-hmm. and so it's something I think about you know on, kind of a, on a daily basis, and something that in order to work on, I think I do what a lot of people do in this area, which is to dissociate a little bit, to be able to to think about these things and write about them and sort of like look through the science, and, and then every once in a while, um, it hits you. Every once in a while, it, it kind of comes in, and it's overwhelming, and then you pack it up and put it away and keep going. Um, so that's sort of where I was before thinking about having a child and I was actually quite ambivalent about having children it was not for me a deep burning need to have kids and it was not that I really didn't want to have kids I just kind of didn't know up until the point where it seemed like it suddenly was possible it hadn't seemed possible before Um, mostly for economic reasons I think this is very very common for younger people today they just don't feel like they can financially support a child or that it would change their life in some deep way um so all of those things were considerations and then, you know, at some point irrational desires end up moving the needle somehow. I can't, I can't like narrativize it for you in a satisfying no, way. It was
2: more on the like uh, from uh, an ideological perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, was it, what did you think at the beginning? Have you always considered that like a personal choice cannot happen? No, impact? I had
1: to find my way here. Okay. It took a, a long time and a lot of reading and a lot of Trying to like testing on different ideas to to see if I believed them or not. And what I read to you tonight is what I believe right now today, wholeheartedly. (laughs) Um, But I do reserve the right to change my mind. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how this will develop. To reach
2: this conclusion. Sorry. How many years
1: did it take for you to reach this conclusion? Many. Many. (laughs) (laughs) One more.
2: Thank you for your lecture. I just sort of had a feel that um, perhaps you were stressing the human a bit more than you know the, the other inhabitants of this planet. That you know, it, it is said that our planet is sick, and we have got a sick planet. And one of the reasons I believe is because you know all the other animals are, are being. It, it said. Someone said, and it's obviously a tremendous generalization and not true, but for every human that is created, a wild animal dies. And we haven't got many more wild animals. And also, you know, every year, you know, a a forest the size of Belgium, you know, forests the size of Belgium are cut down in order to accommodate, you know, the increased population, both in terms of land use and in terms of, of creating, you know, having enough food and i just i just wondered whether you would you know whether whether we, i just felt you were being too human orientated and not enough animal-oriented, and perhaps you could say something about
1: that. Yeah, it's actually a good point, because I think in most of my other work, I'm so not thinking about the human. I'm so concerned about the ecological ramifications and understanding the how ecosystems are breaking down and what's happening in the ocean and what how much carbon can we put where and what happens, um, that I think I really wanted to think about the human deeply for a moment. Um, and so I would say, you know, yes, I do believe that I am a human and therefore I place greater value in the end on human life than on ecosystems in in that kind of, like, even balance in the sense that, like, I'm not a deep ecologist. I don't believe that the ecosystem is more important than anything else. I think life is going to be fine with or without us on this planet. Um, Whether or not we're around uh, is sort of the question. Um, And so... I worry a little bit about the dichotomy, though. I think the thinking about humans as this sort of rapacious, ravenous, terrible force on the planet um, that we are at odds then with all of the rest of nature and that we're somehow this sort of special separate thing that just is ruining everything um, is very, very tempting and, as you say, not necessarily untrue up until this point. Human development, overfishing, the way that we have used resources up until now has been devastating to life on this planet. I also don't think that's the only way it ever necessarily has to be. I'm not sure it's a problem of human nature or of the human organism. I think it's more a problem of human organization and I don't think we've actually really tried to organize differently and that's where I sort of place my, my hope for both ecology, you know not both, for humans including all of the ecology that we live in. If that makes sense? Yeah? Thank you so much.